Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book, The Fire Next Time, and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care. Hey everyone. So this is a conversation with Martin Paul Eve. The reason why I had him on is that I read an article of his called Just the First Two Years about what the past two years of pandemic have been for him as someone with an autoimmune condition that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. He'll pronounce it later. And I found it as I myself recently caught COVID following the Swiss government's decision to first reduce health measures before removing them altogether. As many governments remove all remaining health measures, life is becoming increasingly difficult for many people, especially those who are disabled or immunocompromised. What does this say about our political culture if we allow this to become the norm? This is what this conversation was about. We focused on the UK and Switzerland uh, because this is where we are, but honestly, this is applicable to many other countries as well. This is a very important conversation, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be more relevant in the coming weeks and months. Uh, And as always, I thank you for listening and take care. My name is Martin Paul Eve. I'm Professor of Literature, Technology and Publishing at the University of London's Birkbeck College. Um, I work primarily on contemporary American and British fiction, but also I do quite a bit of work studying scholarly communications. So looking at the way that academics communicate with one another, uh, thinking about those cultures, how they're socialised and understanding um, their place in contemporary science, really, I guess. Uh, I'm on the podcast today because I'm also extremely clinically vulnerable and throughout the COVID pandemic, my health conditions have played a major role in uh, my ongoing functionality and and well-being. And um, I'm grateful today just to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about what that means and what the future looks like for people with similar circumstances. I found your your essay, your article, what have you, because I recently got COVID, which I will also talk about. Um, probably have recovered by now. It's been over two weeks. But I'll mention why this sort of isn't the end of the story. Because there's, another, there's one thing that links us here, which is you're in the UK and I'm in Switzerland. And both countries have been, let's say, well, let's just completely abandoning any kind of uh, health restrictions. Uh, here in Switzerland, uh, we're recording this on April 4th, and as of, um, which is a Monday, and as of Friday, so April 1st, they removed all, uh, everything, basically. Um, and there, there's been a number of uh, stuff that passed on, like social media, on Swiss social, social media, or for example, the government, because they would send you a text when you had to quarantine, for example, after testing positive. And so uh, my wife got it. Uh, she also got COVID, unfortunately, last week. And so she was supposed to quarantine until today, actually. Today would have been the last day. And on Friday, she got a text saying that basically you no longer need to quarantine. And so she got two different texts, essentially. The one, the first, the medical one, and then the official, the policy one that followed soon after. And there were a number of te- people who got it the same day as the po- the new policy was implemented. And so they got two separate messages that were, you know, contradictory, essentially. The first one saying you have to quarantine and then immediately after, well, actually, you don't need to quarantine anymore. For you, uh, as you already hinted at, it's it's a different uh, sort of calculation altogether. So I, I suppose to start or properly start this conversation, can you tell us how these past two years have been for you? Sure. So, I mean, it's probably just worth backing up a bit. So the reason that I'm vulnerable is that I have a set of autoimmune conditions, um, rheumatoid arthritis and vasculitis, that are treated essentially using chemotherapy medications. So in particular, I was given a medication called rituximab uh, around 2014 or so, uh, which caused me permanently to have a condition called panhypogammaglobulinemia, which basically means uh, I can't produce the antibody components in relation to either an infection or the vaccination. And really, um, my immunology department was very clear early on you mustn't contract this virus, it will kill you. And so the the immediate period of March 2020 was one of intense anxiety. In fact, 
I've never been in a room full of people who were more frightened than being on the immunology ward where I was being given my um, immune therapy and just seeing the kind of realization spread from person to immunocompromised person in this room that um, for the indefinite future, there was going to be this background existential threat that that would hang over everything that went on. And we we went into lockdown earlier than than the official calls in the UK. It was um, the 6th of March 2020 that we decided we needed to go and what was then called shielding. And it hasn't really changed since then. We we are isolated from friends and family. We we will let them come visit if they if they can isolate for 10 days before they come. But that's quite a, a big ask of friends who uh, you know have other lives to lead. We will see people outside in the garden if they've done a lateral flow test, you know, as long as they're not coming and sneezing and looking like they're they're dying and they're clear on the lateral flow test. Yes, okay, that's fine. But really it's been quite quite a substantive narrowing of world purview. You know, before the pandemic, in a typical week, I could be anywhere around the globe, you know, whether that was Tokyo or Cambridge, Massachusetts, or even over in Geneva, where um, where you are. But um, that dried up overnight, and who knows whether that will ever return at this current point. So I'm keen. I'm keen to stress that I'm in many ways quite privileged. I work for an employer who takes care of me. I feel as though, you know, I've been protected. But on the other hand, it is getting to a point now where this isolation and constant threat feels quite oppressive and is also an impediment just to the day-to-day vibrancy of life, really. Of course. And, uh, you know, hence the just the first two years. You mentioned, and maybe we, we, let's um, expand on this just a bit as to why, well, you mentioned why, of course, you, you're, you're so vulnerable now, but you also mentioned in the piece that in 2023, you might have some good news, but that's not confirmed. Can you just talk about that first? Sure. So my uh, immune system is boosted five days a week by injections of a blood transfusion um, product called, which has immunoglobulins in it. So basically, I get synthetic immunity from the donation process. Um, it takes a thousand donations to make a single batch of this um, blood product, and it takes and it's stored for three years. So essentially, before the pandemic, there are no antibodies among anybody to this new novel coronavirus. So the immunoglobulins give no protection. Three years down the road, the donations have come from a period when the virus was was running riot. So the hope is that three years after the start of the pandemic, my therapy will have um, uh, protection built in. But the problem is that will only be against the first variant, not against the subsequent ones necessarily. And, you know, immune escape will mean that we're back to square one on that countdown from, from the three-year phase. So again, you know, I'm fortunate in many ways that I, I received this incredibly expensive treatment. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's it's not the silver bullet that one might hope for. No, and I mean... I guess it's just worth pointing out that when we say good news, we're still talking about having to wait an entire year, which is not the easiest thing to do. So I, as I mentioned, I recently got COVID. Uh, as far as I can tell, it I got it on uh, Friday two weeks ago because the government removed uh, certain certain measures. So as of April first, they removed all of them. Before that, you could you still had to wear your mask in uh, like public transport and in hospitals, and you still had to self-isolate after actually getting COVID. That's what they removed on the 1st of April. Uh, but as of um, early February, I'm going to say, I actually forgot, You could they already removed masks indoors in like uh, restaurants, cafes, uh, cinemas, that sort of thing. And my best guess is that I got COVID at the cinema because I was the only one who was masked there. And I was hoping that the room would was like big enough that I wouldn't get it. But there you go. And I can't, I couldn't think of any other place where I would have gotten it unless I got really unlucky at like the supermarket or something where I would kind of stay 10 minutes and then leave, do my shopping quickly. And I, then I basically I self-isolated for a few days. And despite that, my wife got it. And so we've been on this prolonged quarantine for about, well, prolonged, barely a bit more than the usual, I guess, uh, about two weeks, a little over two weeks now. We're lucky also in the sense that, well, for one, we got uh, three doses of the, vac- of the vaccine. 
Uh, Switzerland on that front has been fine, I would say. It's actually, there's a problem of vaccine hoarding from the global south, which a lot of people have been talking about, of course. So on that front, we're okay. And we're sort of hoping that because it wasn't that long after the third dose, which was on January uh, this year that we, we had the third dose, that hopefully our immune system was high enough that uh, we will avoid long-term effects, which was always my, my worry. Uh, well, after the second dose, especially, that was my main worry. And I remember I had this chat, I think it was about a year ago. Time is very blurry at this point, but I think it was about a year ago. And I had this chat with a friend of mine who's in Berlin. And I told him that the reason why I'm worried about getting COVID isn't just literally getting COVID, but it's because of this seeming acceptance that we have been seeing in societies and I used to be in the UK for four years. So I'm still following uh, UK news uh, a lot. So I was partly referring to that and he's, he's English as well. But in Switzerland, to be honest, it has not been that different on that front. There's never been really a lockdown, for example, in Switzerland. There's been, it's, they've taken a different route. And that's why it's, at one point they were actually the highest, they had the highest per capita infections or something like that. Uh, I believe it was end of 2020 or something along those lines. But the details, I, get, I might get things be getting them wrong. But anyway, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this story is because I was already paying attention. I'm autistic. And so I pay attention to, um, let's say, sensitive to ableism in general and to these kinds of problems, even though physically I don't have anything as far as I can tell. And I could already see the rhetoric in or the discourse in a lot of, ev really everywhere, to be honest, that there was a difference between what counts as bad, what counts as this is a deadly disease, and usually it's the amount of people who actually die. And we seem to have accepted a certain number of people who can die on a weekly basis. And that's, that doesn't count as too much anymore because of shifting baselines and other huge problems that I, I actually talk about on this podcast often. But of course, there's also the fact, and I have some, you mentioned some statistics. Actually, I'll just let you mention them of like a majority were uh, what the government would label as disabled and of, of the deaths, especially. That again, there was a separation between is it is it hurting or and or killing most of the population or quote-unquote only those who are disabled and that you know second half of the sentence that's where a lot of dark connotations i think end up uh, playing out but yeah i'll I just be curious to your thoughts on this yeah i mean i think that the pandemic has been a story of massive inequality and differentiated outcomes between different groups yeah if if the pandemic universally affected everybody in the same way, we wouldn't have a lot of the social discord that has come about. Um, I, I think, yeah, so to go back to those statistics, um, it turns out that in, in 2020 in the UK, six out of every 10 people who died from the virus uh, would have classified themselves as disabled. And, you know, on shifting baselines, we've still got two jumbo jets worth of deaths every week mm -hmm. here um, from the virus. So, can can you imagine, you know, a Lockerbie disaster every um, twice every week and still having air travel? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I probably can now, actually. Um, but uh, but it seems like that should be an unimaginable shift in the public consciousness. But it turns out to be easier than we might might think. I suppose also um, what what you say about different types of outcome between different types of people is interesting and important here. So the fact that for some people it means near certain death, whereas for others it means symptoms they, they believe to be like a, a mild cold, um, really is a, a huge disparity. And governments have flocked to the lowest common denominator in terms of what they're willing to protect against. On the other hand, I'm not sure that's an entirely sensible way to behave towards a virus that we do not have long-term data on, that we don't really fully understand, and that seems to have multi-systemic organ complications um, throughout. So there's this very quick rush to believe that, oh, COVID is mild in most cases. But as you say, this prevalence of long COVID shows that actually something is going on here that isn't normal. And we seem willing to gamble that everything will be okay, as opposed to playing it safe and saying, you know, perhaps we don't wish to engender the possibility of long-term disability in a whole cohort of school-aged children who have not yet been given vaccinations in the UK. So I'm really interested in the way that 
inequality, risk, baseline perception are all playing out within a political economy that, as you say, then seems rife with this discourse of almost soft eugenics ableism um, in quite a problematic and troubling way. That's exactly it. Um, because again, I'm, I don't know if I will develop long COVID. I hope I won't. Obviously, I'm trying not to freak out about it because I spent, well, we spent, me and my wife, we spent two plus years uh, being pretty strict on um, basically not getting it <laughs> at all costs, essentially. And uh, the just the, the the very idea that it took me one outing. I'm I'm like uh, just as some context. My PhD is on cinema, and I'm a cinephile. And I spent well two plus years before that not going to any cinema. So as soon as I I found an opportunity, I took it, and I thought the risks were quote unquote reasonable um, because I would be wearing my mask and there was some distancing in just de facto because the place was big enough, but who knows? I mean, maybe it wasn't even there. Uh, obviously that I have no, I, I was still going to the supermarket because, well, I have to. Uh, so maybe it was there. I, I really can't tell for sure. But by the time I got it, um, which again is about two weeks ago now, just over two weeks ago, um, by my best estimate, about three weeks to or four weeks, I want to say, of time had already passed where people were getting used to no longer wearing a mask um, indoors, I mean, specifically. Um, so at the cafe, the library, that sort of thing, uh, those are the two places I would mostly go to uh, to work mostly or to, to read a book or what have you uh, when the weather is bad and I can't sit outside. It, it was, it, it felt overnight. It was a decision that they kind of did make pretty quickly and within a couple of days, uh, the restrictions, the initial wave of restrictions, I should say, were lifted. Uh, and then despite the fact that they had the spike in cases after that, they decided to, well, essentially double down in many ways. And what's extraordinary to me is that I've been following some of the local media. It's really been, you know, Geneva finds its smile again and, you know, that sort of thing, which I've seen media the world over repeat the same kind of discourse. Um, and... I do admit that I was, and still am, I'm trying to not freak out, like physically freak out because that doesn't help, but I am, I've been very worried for the past couple of months now. And not just because of the policies themselves, but I'm seeing how policies are already affecting attitudes in people that I knew, like, um, you know, friends or, or relatives or whatnot who live either here or not even in Switzerland. Just the, the idea, because, you know, now there is almost a social pressure to act as if there isn't a pandemic anymore and it's difficult to 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 fight it other than trying to be extra careful me and my wife but if everyone around you is doing something and everyone around you is sort of still going to cafes or they want to go out or they want to at some point i don't know how long we will last essentially i mean i'm saying this i think we will still be very strict but I'm saying that the social pressures are not, they're, they're in sharp contrast to almost exactly two years ago now when we would go out to our balconies at 8 p.m. and applaud, uh, you know, uh, medical workers and what have you. Now, just two years later, even though we still have this deadly virus, it's the exact opposite. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't even have a question on this, to be honest. It's just something that I'm definitely still trying to cope with, to be honest. Well, I am... Um... I saw on, I'm not going to name and shame the Twitter account, but it was an academic on Twitter the other week, actually, had quite a long rant about um, a society-wide hypochondria, um, as as they termed it, and um, how people's health anxiety is now ruining contemporary society um, since the virus, because they couldn't go out and do exactly what they wanted. And it just... I don't know, it filled me with a kind of despair on the first front because um, their reality is not the same as my reality. Mm -hmm. I'm still under very strict warning from immunology that, that I'm in deep trouble if I get this virus and it would be much better not to contract it. But also the way that this discourse seems to me to shift quite rapidly from um, a libertarian politics of, of freedom to do what you want mm -hmm. into a kind of... Um, hate speech almost against those who want to keep or need to keep safe 
And somehow these two things very easily slide between each other in a, in a way that is alarming politically, I think. Um, I also am interested in the way that the discourses of mental health have played out mm. around this and are actually weaponized in quite a nasty way. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and be sensitive talking around this because mental health is a, a difficult thing to speak about. But um, the, the discourse against lockdowns from, again, that, that libertarian sector has, I think, cynically manipulated the discourse of, of mental health here. And it appropriates it in a way that says um, lockdowns are bad for society because people's isolation obviously is a problem and so forth. And I'm not denying that, you know, that that is the case in some ways. But at the same time, that same set thinks that it's acceptable that um, a portion of the population, which is not a small popula- portion who, who remain vulnerable, um, are perfectly able to stay isolated indefinitely and should live their lives in complete and utter um, segregation from from the rest of the world because that allows everybody else to to get on with it. Um, I've often I don't know whether whether you're a Star Trek fan, but I've often much thought so. about <laughs> I've often thought about the Vulcan proverb, uh, you know, the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, mm. and thought it's actually quite a problematic. Yeah. Um, philosophy in in lots of ways. Yes, it seems noble when first you come to it, but our laws, societies, civilizations are meant also to protect vulnerable minorities from natural and social ravages that might otherwise uh, Mm -hmm. cause them serious damage. And it seems to me that principle has been radically abandoned in the latest phase of the pandemic. Yeah, I... I actually have a concrete example just to because you mentioned how there is the assumption that, you know, those who, quote unquote, will have to um, basically stay in lockdown, uh, that they can just manage, they can just find, you know, what have you. Like, as it happens this week, I was supposed to go to Zurich to do a class. And at first I thought it would be in hybrid mode. So I thought, well, I would have at least the option. That was before I got COVID. Um, I thought I would have the option to stay at home in case something happens, but as it turned out, there isn't. Uh, was, there wasn't a hybrid mode. It's just a bunch of lectures, so I figured maybe the professor um, would like, you know, uh, be willing to just open Zoom account or what have you, and I would listen in that way. Uh, but they just said no, and so I had to just earlier today I had to cancel attendance to that class. Um, and th- what's kind of wild about this is that the professor um, himself got COVID last week. Uh, so like his recovery period is actually shorter than mine. Mine is actually a bit longer. And what kind of scares me about this is that I would have been, if I had gone, I would have gone, been in a room with other students. Um, legally, I even if I did have COVID, I could have chosen to not even wear a mask. All of those other students can contract COVID and whatever uh, short-term or long-term health impacts they would have, I would have to live with that in my mind. Like just on my, it's, it's sustained on my conscience. And obviously, I did not want that. And so I canceled my attendance. And now I need to figure out how to take that extra credit now, um, which I will, I will find a way. It's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but it's manageable in my case. If I was immunocompromised, the options right now would literally be either you risk risk it all for one credit or you um yeah or you or you don't do it or you don't do the class and you have to you have to figure it out um there isn't i part of it is a very i don't know if it's a generalization but i've been here for two years and i'm i'm trying to be kind of an observer as well of the political culture that's around me that does seem to be a every person to his own or her own kind of situation in switzerland um as i said there's never really been a collective lockdown um, vaccine, uh, not vaccine testing wasn't even a bit available uh, before like a year into the pandemic uh, because of the insurance system and a bunch of other complicated stuff that's too boring to mention here. At some point it was just, yeah, it's if you get it, then you get it, figure it out and good luck to you. You know, there wasn't a, there was, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It, it is, I do. I don't think calling it soft eugenics or what have you is an exaggeration on this. I really don't think it is, uh, especially in a, in a country like this one. Now it's by any objective measure, it's worse. Epidemiologists were quoted in all sorts of media here 
over the past couple of months uh, before they removed the first sets of measures and then after they even now basically the past few days saying like this is not a good idea this is not a good idea um it should be a much slower process some of them would say others would say uh they should at least at the very least still be uh the mask mandates uh because we know obviously that covid is airborne um you know all of those things and it's just been ignored and what's baffling to me is that i'm seeing the media follow suit uh one of the websites that i i kind of follow a lot is swiss info um and they're pretty good overall on on most things as far as i can tell but they decided i think about a month no they decided when the first um measures were removed to no longer update daily as they have been doing for two years now as if this now means that well you know a major publication is no longer updating daily i i think the messages that that sends is pretty you know pretty straightforward um and as i as I mentioned before my wife and i are pretty lucky in the sense that we both work remotely um i am I've, when i moved to switzerland i had already done two years so i'm of the phd so i'm in the writing phase and so i didn't actually need to be physically present uh, anywhere i can just do my go to the library from time to time and and it's been working well as as well as a phd works uh, you know with all the caveats of that that comes with and in her case she also works from home and that sort of thing so we're okay on that but it it's it is weird that we are now living at the moments where we have to count on being lucky with our work environment environment uh to avoid getting a a deadly virus or in our case a potentially deadly virus especially or if not deadly i mean deadly isn't the only criteria obviously you know lifetime um um lifetime worth of health impacts could still follow obviously i think um also i mean it you're obviously a very good person who has that conscious uh, conscience about um not infecting other people but the problem is that doesn't seem to be the case society-wide and the effects of covid are negative externalities so the, the public good the good for you of going to the lecture would obviously be that you would get your education you'd do your your credit and you can displace the um the negative aspects onto somebody else mm-hmm. in the room um, without there being any additional apart from the, the mental conscience thing any impact on you directly and so again, this this seems to me that this is an environment where lawmaking and politics should have a role. For instance, we don't let people just pollute the environment around us so that they can make their own profit. Mm-hmm. So why do we why do we think a virus is a, is a different thing there? And I I wonder if, if there's something to do with the um, apparent naturalness of the virus and this nature culture distinction that problematically says that we can't be held responsible for passing on viruses because they just happen and you're just going to have to learn to live with it mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. something like that. But that seems to be at work. I also, um, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about mask mandates. I've been really surprised by how apparently offensive it is to have to wear a mask. For me, that doesn't really seem actually the end of the world if it's a, uh, an act of politeness. For for instance, I went to Japan a few years ago to give a talk and it was just common practice that actually it's rude to blow your nose in public mm-hmm. because you could give someone else an infection. People wear masks to protect themselves and others and it's regularly accepted. So, I mean, how much of an overgrown child do you have to be to really think that the end of the world is being asked to wear a mask in public to protect other people? Um, and you know, curiously, those are often the quarters from which the discourses of snowflake are being meted out, whereas they can't even take, can you wear a mask, please, to protect other people? Oh, for sure. And I mean, Japan is a good example, because I I know, at least from the case of Taiwan, of both Taiwan and South Korea, that well, I'm going to speak to Taiwan specifically, just because I studied it a bit more, where they were pretty good and are still relatively good at dealing with this, partly because there was already a pre-existing culture of just wearing your mask when you feel you can pass something on to your neighbor. Um, I was sort of hoping, and maybe I'm gonna maintain that hope just because, but I was sort of hoping that as we get used to wearing a mask two years into this, 
that maybe even post-COVID we would start wearing masks when, uh, you know, we have a cold or what have you, rather than just assume that we can just pass it on to someone else. Um, even though for the most part, colds aren't deadly or what have you, at least where we live. But, you know, again, just as a matter of politeness, it's not fun to have one. Um, but I'm, I, given that that's not what we're seeing and the trend is definitely not towards that, I'm sort of, um, yeah, I find myself just trying to calm myself down and not think of the worst case scenarios and hope that maybe we outrun or we outlive this thing, even though all of the data isn't, you know, supporting that conclusion. But it's like I'm taking my precautions and I'm I'm being as responsible as I can, like physically, I mean. Uh, and otherwise, I, I don't know what else to do, essentially. Uh, and the reason why I say this isn't, I don't want to sound like fatalistic or anything like that. It's more that I, I rely a lot on circles of friends and uh, like just people around me in general, either who live nearby or who don't, most, most don't actually. And certain like a shared attitude that we have um, towards things in general, climate change, social equalities, what have you. And we don't have to agree on everything, but basically like let, let us agree on some of the basics. On COVID, the basics was we have to just stay vigilant, be careful. We don't have to freak out as in uh, we, we can still see each other from time to time as long as we take precautions, etc., etc. Um, but we still need to take those precautions. And that has been withering away, um, I would say, in the past, yeah, past few months, uh, definitely. And it went from not that long ago, like up to we got we got married in October 2021. So six months ago or so. And back then it was still everyone was very careful. Um, we encouraged everyone to do tests and that sort of thing. And then Christmas happens and then just like that, suddenly there's no more, there isn't that worry anymore. And what, uh, maybe I'm repeating myself a bit, but what kind of worries me most uh, as far as personally is that if I do get long COVID or some associated symptoms, associated, I mean, something related to long COVID, um, or if it, if it affects my body in, in a different way that I just, we don't understand yet, um, this will, I will be a person with some kind of illness in a society or in a political culture that has already shown that it would be willing to kill me off essentially. And for me, it is, I'm I, probably it's an autistic thing. I don't know. It is very easy for me to just picture these scenarios and not see them as fictional impossibilities that we can just think, you know, um, mentally postpone or what have you it's just these are the facts and that's it it's like a leads to b and it's not complicated essentially i don't have these at least not to the same extent as far as i can understand that these filters cultural filters if you want of well everything that we're already talking about and so it's difficult because at some point i'm the not the only person but among the few people in in what feels like basically a smaller, um, ever shrinking number of people that sound alarmist, you know, like sound like uh, you're, you're the person, you know, ringing the, the, the end is nigh uh, convert or what have you essentially when I'm just reading this, the latest scientific papers and concluding based on that. <laughs> and I, I have a background in my undergrad, I should say it's in environmental health, so I can at least read, read those papers and the conclusions are pretty straightforward. But yeah, here we are. I mean, um, one of the things that struck me, just to go back to the um, cultural differences in terms of mask wearing, is that um, the early phase of the virus was dominated by a kind of sinophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, in which you know China was blamed, particularly in U.S. politics, yeah. for for the spreading of the virus, and you know a Japanophobia probably also creeps into this. And my my suspicion is that um, a solution 
to stopping the spread of the virus, like masking, that came from an Asian cultural community would not find political um, home in in the West because there is this ingrained um, prejudice against those types of cultures. So I wonder whether the very fact that Japan and China have these have masking cultures has actually, in a sense, amid that those phobias backfired against our own ability to control it. So a bit of a hypothesis there, but but an interesting one. Well, I do I do think that. One thing that was very obvious um, to me, at least, uh, uh, in the early days, first few months, I mean, honestly, first year, or I don't know when I stopped really, but it was, I was checking on a daily basis. Um, I was checking The Guardian, I was checking New York Times, I was reading uh, some of the scientific papers directly, uh, and those various websites that gather data, um, as well as some of the different governments, especially the Swiss one, because we live here. And I, I did find that even then, I remember like two, a little less than two years ago, I did find it striking that despite the fact that a country like Taiwan, and I have a, there's a good episode, um, I'm spacing out on the name, but they were talking about how, how Taiwan managed to, to control it at the time. And it wasn't that, it wasn't that complicated. Um, mass testing, afford, uh, free mass testing, everyone with a mask, uh, social distancing, the whole we are all in this togetherness of things. And I just don't remember that method, not just Taiwan, the various countries that I'm now spacing out on the specifics. I think South Korea was a relatively success case at some point. I don't remember, but different countries were doing it better, essentially. And we were not learning from it. Like, there was no... Again, I, I try and closely like to pay attention closely. There, there was like the you know the odd op-ed and one investigation here and there, but it wasn't a dominant part of the cultural discourse to sort of say, well, let's adopt the Taiwan model and uh, we'll be better off. You know, it was no, we're Swiss, we're Brits, we're French, we're Germans, we're what have you. We obviously know better. And we'll just fi- figure out a way, uh, regardless of what's happening over there. And we just don't think we don't have to think about it. And I, so I do think, you know, I, I, I don't think you're far off with that. Essentially, I, I do think there's something to it that there is almost a, a we have to be humble in many ways, and we don't want to be to accept that. Well, our method in dealing with this virus was objectively much worse than what Taiwan did, not uh, obviously because Taiwan dealt with a a pandemic not that long ago, a decade ago or so. In a better or smarter world, we would have just adopted the best practices and gone with that, but we just didn't. And so I, yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong on that. You know, I, I at least I think that there is some, there's something to it for sure. I think, yeah, the basic cultural implication is um, a question of, of from where we're willing to learn. And I think in, in the global north, to use a term that is contentious, but nonetheless mm-hmm. useful, we like to think of ourselves as knowledge exporters. Uh, we, you know, we publish stuff in high, high priority journals and the rest of the world um, learns from it. We're not very good at working the other way around in a system of global exchange. It's perhaps less true of Japan than it used to be, yeah. given the rapid industrialization since the mid 20th century. But on the other hand, it, it does provoke these questions. And then I also, yeah. um, I was just going to go back to your point about life, you know, and whether your life is worth much. Mm. Really, I, I think in the UK context in particular, this discourse has been there for quite a long time. Um, as you are probably aware, mm. you know, the, the UN um, Disability Rights Commission has found the UK government's policy to be discriminatory and pretty disgusting in lots of ways. But the pandemic has made it really explicit. It just, we, we dropped all pretense at um, a, a nice front that we're going to protect people in these categories and that they, they're worth something. And, you know, it's refreshing in some ways, but it's also distressing and extremely worrying to see such open displays of disability hate, really. And as you said, soft eugenics is a, an apt term. Oh, and obviously ageism in the early days, especially, I remember a lot of uh, there's there's a horrible term that i remember which is the boomer remover i remember that one 
And there was a number of, um, yeah, I mean, similar terms, uh, or at the very least, it stands that, well, we have to protect our elderly, but there's there was always this but, there's the sense of, well, to some extent, it's natural, there's this, this, I'm hoping that we just, we can get to a point where we're able to ask ourselves very critical questions on what is it in our political culture, and I insist on saying political culture specifically, because culture is such a broad and vague term at times um but in the sense of what we consider worth it i mean you say yourself and and, um obviously if if the virus was uh affecting everyone in the same way probably we would have figured out a way to stop it a long time ago have a global zero covid policy at this point um but i also have this theory that if the virus was visible, like you could literally see blue dots coming out of people's mouths or whatever, droplets, um, we would be more freaked out about it. We would literally be avoiding it, like on the streets or in a cafe, or, you know, we would be seeing it. And and yet there is a, a I don't know how to, like, I don't want to maybe get too philosophical about it or what have you, but there is a, a disconnect between us and our bodies, if that makes sense, uh, as if like we're not our bodies, as if our bodies just is can handle something differently than what our mental state can. And I, I've, I, and I'm not saying I'm not saying this like as someone who doesn't do that. I actually think I do do this to some extent. I don't think I'm completely divorced from this attitude either. But I'm saying that at the very least, it should be part of the critical rethinking of why we are, why we have been, especially in the past few months so reckless with something that we know based on the data and the studies that have already happened so far that it can still affect even if you do have even if even if you're not immunocompromised and even if you are vaccinated and you you got it which is my case now like as far as i can understand i'm as my immunity is as high as it can get at this point basically um because i got three dose and then i got it um it that does not mean that in five years i won't have some kind of side effect or I don't know I'm at this point I just basically have to hope for it and obviously try and take care of my health as much as I can but you know it's just one of those things it's a multi it, it causes what was the term multi-system failure or something like that or it affects things on a multi-system level I forgot what the term was um but yeah yeah but yeah sorry again no questions on that I'm just I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting also that you um you talked you talked about the kind of sensory visibility of COVID, mm-hmm. and um I was I'm struck I think you're absolutely right if if we could see COVID that would be different but one one of the things we can actually do is is smell um, particulate gases from quite quite a way away if somebody's been smoking and they walk past you you can actually get a sense of oh my word that person is you know six meters away but I can smell mm-hmm. their smoke. Mm-hmm. And if that was actually the principle on which we worked, that would be a really good measure of how you go, you're going to get COVID. If you can smell someone's cigarette from the distance you're at, you could potentially contract an aerosol-borne pathogen. So there's also an interesting hierarchy here of how we value different senses and mm-hmm. different um, abilities. Sight is obviously given the greatest societal prevalence, yeah. but there was never this focus on smell and, and breathing that really surely you think would be absolutely key to to managing a pathogen like this. Mm. I guess in your individual case, you know, I obviously I, I wish you completely the best and I hope that it just pans out to be a good long, you know, long term, you're absolutely fine and, and it was just a, a blip. But, you know, it's not unreasonable to be anxious about the long term consequences of a virus that is completely novel and about which we don't know much at the moment. And most people seem very happy to gamble with that Whereas I feel in my life, I've had a lot of health setbacks. I've had a stroke as well as a result of my um, arthritis, which, you know, surprises people, but rheumatoid arthritis attacks the blood vessels and and that caused me to have a stroke. Mm. And those moments where my whole life changed afterwards as a result of illness really are, for me, key milestones in my life, not, not, not positive ones. So I feel that healthy people who are willing to take a risk with their health often don't know what they might lose if they're not careful and it it makes me feel a bit queasy seeing seeing people just happy to say i'm going to give it a chance because you don't get a second 
second chance with your health. It, again, I, I really think people who say that um, assume that when, I don't know, there is just the sense that I get that they assume that it won't, it just won't be them. Um, like they cannot become disabled or they cannot become immunocompromised as if you're either born with it and that's the only thing that, that's the only scenario that exists. And obviously for many people, they are born with it or what have you, but it can also develop in childhood and adulthood and what have you. And it, it probably has to go back to, again, a political culture that does not want to deal with this thing. And from government to media to, I don't know, education system, maybe I, I, I can probably blame everything at this point, but um, it is, it is, yeah, it, it is concerning. And so for me personally, I'm trying to, Part of this episode's purpose actually is that now I I can send people an episode and tell them, hey, can you can you just listen to this one? Listen to this episode and let's have a conversation about it later. Uh, because otherwise I'm every single time in like every on a daily basis, maybe in so many different interactions, I'm gonna f- I'm gonna feel like a madman. I'm gonna feel like I'm losing my mind. Like I'm just repeating this very obvious thing as if we have not spent two years, we as in people, um, have not spent the past two years uh, agreeing on this thing and saying that this thing is obviously not good and we need to avoid it and and that's it. And um, we go from this to relatives of mine, uh, again, six months ago, being utterly paranoid of getting it to now comparing it to the flu, and which I think they mean a cold. When they say the flu, they don't mean the flu. Um, and that, you know, will pass and that's it. It will pass and everything will be fine. And we're supposed, it's almost like a mantra. We're supposed to repeat it enough time. And if we do it enough time, it will become true or something. And I so I obviously don't want that. <laughs> what I think is interesting as well is um, this, the idea, thinking within disability context, of the idea that anybody can become disabled and it could be you that ends up um, in that position. It's at once a very powerful driver of empathy and understanding and at the same time quite a problematic concept Mm. in on the one hand yes all right okay if it encourages people to think better about others and to help them because they can see themselves in that other person then that that's great but but on the other hand it's a model in which disability illness and so on are a threat and the disabled person Mm -hmm. is a a reminder of that potential threat mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm, self. Mm-hmm. So the fact that disability can happen to anyone um, doesn't necessarily translate into empathy. It can translate into a fear and and withdrawal. So that that's the kind of interesting parallel I've, I've found in the, in the COVID era. Is yes, you might be the person who does get long COVID and you end up in trouble, but that doesn't mean that you empathise with people who are at higher risk necessarily. Um, and it, it's highlighted that in quite a problematic way. That's a good point. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I guess for me, I, I actually didn't think about this because I'm autistic and I there's already quite a lot of people who think that this is just a contagious thing and they can either get it from a vaccine or, or whatever. And so I think I just took it for granted that many people think that way. Um, but yeah, um, before we get into the book section, uh, which is how we finish all episodes on, on this podcast, um, I know that you also uh, have been work. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like working on like open access and and that sort of thing. And we we do have this in common as well. I've been doing this PhD for well four and a half years now, although it feels like fifty years. And um, hopefully done in a few months. And uh, my my topic is relatively obscure. Uh, it's like Lebanese cinema, and I had to so much of my work was just actually finding them or at least getting them, uh, getting some copy. It just, it was all about just getting the source essentially. And I relied a lot on, on open access information. Um, I, I can legit say that without websites, uh, that have papers that would otherwise not be available, I would not have been able to do this PhD. It's really that straightforward. I would have actually quit. It was just not, with COVID, especially. I would not be. It would just not be physically possible. Um, so yeah, I was just curious. Uh, so your thoughts on this, and then we can jump into the book section. Yeah, I mean, since I did my PhD um, a decade or so ago, decade and a half ago, I have 
been working extensively on open access to research work in the humanities disciplines in particular. For me, the academic publishing system with paywalls is just not fulfilling the potential of, of what we could do with knowledge in society. And although perhaps my faith in you know, the ability of science and rationality and the humanities to change public perceptions has been dented by COVID. On the other hand, I don't see how we can expect to have an educated population who engage critically in democratic functions if they can't get access to the fruits of knowledge. So I, I founded a, a platform called the Open Library of Humanities that publishes 32 open access journals and is funded by um, 320 or so academic libraries worldwide. Um, all of my um, nine books are openly accessible and can be downloaded and read for free. All of my journal articles, um, likewise, are open access, and I, I think it's a really important part of what I do. I mean, I'm only going to live a certain number of years on this earth. What I really don't want is that everything I've written is going to remain behind a paywall mm -hmm. for up to 70 years after I die as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel as though by, by pursuing open access for my own writings... I am able to do much more good in the world and feel that there is a vocational aspect to working and teaching in higher education. Absolutely. And I mean, in the spirit of that, what are three books that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay, so I, yeah, I, I realized that even though I'm a professor of English, I haven't really actually read a novel since Christmas. <laughs> but um, I've, went, I've gone and recommended three novels, in fact. So rather than nonfiction, here are three novels that I really enjoyed, and I'll just briefly say why. So um, The Overstory by Richard Powers, um, absolutely remarkable book, sort of contemporary ecological parable that I, I couldn't put it down. It's not didactic. It's a little bit tricky to get started with, but, you know, hugely enjoyable, um, thoroughly recommended from just a couple of years ago. Um, Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow mm -hmm. remains my favorite book of all time. I ended up doing an undergraduate dissertation, a master's dissertation, a PhD, and a book on it. <laughs> it was a, a lifetime of obsession almost. Um, an off-the-wall historical novel that just rewards close rereading as many times as you go back. So not exactly easy again, but um, incredible. And lastly, um, David Grossman's book, See Under Love, which is See Under as in an encyclopedia entry mm -hmm. might say, C under mm -hmm. X colon love, um, is the most astonishing novel about the Holocaust I've ever read. Uh, you know, there are lots of books about the Holocaust. It's a staple generic trope in many ways now, but this one's like no other. Final chapters and encyclopedia in which the narrative unfolds via that alphabetical structure rather than over the conventional fictional model. Um, thoroughly recommended. Amazing. Well, I've I've heard of the first two. I haven't heard of. I've, I think I've heard of the third author. Remind me his name, sorry. David Grossman. He, he's he's well known, right? He's written other. Yeah, he's um he's a well known um, Israeli author right, 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 um, right. with um, leftist political sympathies and a very interesting experimental writing career. Amazing. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for that. Um, I definitely need to check out all three books. And I say this after every episode, but I, in this case, I do actually want to read those three books. Well, uh, Martin, th thank you a lot for your time. This was really informative and hopefully people listening will find it uh, so as well, which I'm sure they would. And yeah, thanks for everything. Thank you so much, Joey. Really appreciate your time today. Pleasure. <laughs> The Friday's Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.